the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning again, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing in our series uh, dealing with the book called uh, entitled Homecoming, a book I wrote uh, last year, came out last year. Uh, the subline is how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And where we off, left off last week um, was pretty much explaining um, what was the purpose of the law at Mount Sinai was, because we're talking about the chapter in this book called The Requirements of Journeys. And uh, in essence, we were saying that the journey of the Hebrews leaving Egypt after the Passover uh, miracle uh, had to engage upon a journey by leaving Egypt going through the Red Sea experience, coming up on the other side alive uh, while Pharaoh's um, soldiers who were going to pursue them and reassert their authority so that they could enslave them again were, were all f- face down floating in the Red Sea, drowned. And, um, and we tied together how those events in that initiation, initiatory journey, if you will, uh, linked with the first three uh, Hebrew feasts, uh, Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits. But the fourth feast um, is different, and we talked about it being uh, Pentecost, or as the Jews uh, title it, is Shavuot. And it's a uh, basically a summertime harvest of wheat, unlike the springtime harvest of barley that we see at first fruits. And the experience of the Hebrews at the fourth leg of their journey was encountering God for the first time um, directly. They hadn't seen uh, or had any experience with God for about 400, some, some other people say 430 years while they were enslaved in Egypt uh, by Pharaoh. And we talked about the typology of what Pharaoh represents uh, Egypt being the system of the world, Pharaoh being uh, the cruel taskmaster, Satan, and um, and basically that Passover experience with the unblemished lamb was to cause judgment to fall on uh, the Egyptians, the s- slaveholders, if you will, um, as a condemnation of their rebellious society and giving an opportunity for the Hebrew children to depart and to come back to a relationship with their father God. And we also explained that this was not an add water and shake process. It involved a journey that they actually had to to take, undertake. And um, the journey involved, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the father bringing them out to a desolate place called the Sinai Desert. And we studied uh, earlier the motivations for the father doing that. He wanted to reestablish 
a relationship with his children, his Hebrew children. And it wasn't just a corporate relationship with the group. It was also designed to be an individual relationship with each one of the members of the the Hebrew tribe, the Hebrew clan, if you will. And um, so when they get to Sinai, as we discussed, there was a lot of uh, thunder and rumblings and shaking of the earth, and it was a very intimidating um, scene, as you can imagine. Um, But the Jews decided that they weren't going to go up the mountain. They were going to send an agent in their place to represent them because they were intimidated and they really didn't want to uh, have a personal relationship with this, with this God of Israel who was manifesting his power at this mountain. Um, and so they said, Moses, you're going to be our representative. You're going to be our agent. And they send him up. And, um, and when he goes up, he receives the law of Sinai. And we talked uh, last week, we actually ended last week with a reference in um, Galatians uh, chapter 3, looking at uh, verse 16. Um, And it said, talking about an earlier covenant that was made, was now to Abraham and his seed, and notice in the New King James Version, the word seed is a capital S, so that's obviously talking about um, the fact that the Messiah was going to come through the Hebrew line of, of Abraham. And um, so it's referring to Jesus, it's referring to Yeshua, as his um, Jewish name is, is known by. Um, and it says in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 3, now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, that's a little s there. We're still in verse 16. Um, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed. That's again a capital S, who is Christ. So Paul spells it out pretty much uh, to whom he's referring And it says in verse 17, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant uh, which was confirmed by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Uh, Verse 18, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So where is this going? Uh, We were asking the question, why the law? And we were talking last week about um, contrasting Paul's writings and his epistles that um, when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, he's, we are saved by uh, grace through faith, um, does that mean that you throw the law out because we're not under law, we are under grace? And we, it's a long show. I, I don't want to repeat that. I, th- I just encourage you to go back to the podcast uh, from last week. Uh, where we discuss that, but just to briefly summarize, um, we in essence stated there's a difference between, when you're talking about the law of Sinai, the internal moral law of God aspect of the law compared or contrasted with um, the religious observances, um, the rituals, and the dietary laws, et cetera, of the law, which are really not directly connected to the eternal moral law of God. And when Paul was comparing um, the message being given to Gentiles that they were not under the law, he never intended to compare uh, or hold up grace as a comparison um, with the eternal moral law aspect of the law of Sinai. And, um, and if we don't understand that contextually as Gentiles, when we're reading uh, this, we think, oh, great, we're not under law. Well, of course, now Paul also addresses that in, in uh, Romans chapter 6, where he says, so if we're under grace, does that mean we uh, sin even more? And he says, certainly not, of course not. Um, but unfortunately, um, 
there are a lot of folks who have not been taught contextually of the Jewish uh, um, framework of all of this backdrop. And they don't make the distinction between um, rituals and observances and uh, religious rites and dietary requirements versus the moral aspect of the law. Paul never, ever compared um, the the dispensation of grace with the moral law of God and say we're not under any moral law of God. It's eternal. And uh, one of the good examples that we uh, talked about was um, Micah 6.8. Uh, asking the question, oh, man, what does God require of you? Uh, and this kind of summarizes it. It's to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. And, of course, Jesus himself uh, gave a summary of the law, talking about the moral aspect of the law. He says, uh, love God with all your heart, uh, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says that's the summary. Um, but to say that there, we're not under any uh, moral component of the law um, really misses the whole point. So you could go back to that show from last week, and we pointed that out um, contextually what Paul was talking about because of the Judaizers following him from town to town and uh, basically trying to reimpose all aspects of the law, all the rituals, all the observances, all of the technical requirements on, a, on, a, on Gentile towns where Paul was traveling in his, in his ministry work, and Paul was very frustrated. And many of his law, uh, letters address the Judaizers who were trying to uh, basically impose Jewish non-moral aspect of the law on, on Gentiles. It just didn't make any sense. And so that's what Paul uh, belabored in uh, the point of saying, hey, uh, grace, yes, we are are saved by grace through faith, but that does not mean there is no moral, eternal moral law of God. It just means we are not under the ritual and the observance and the um, dietary laws. about 613 of them, uh, that the Jews were under in the um, Jewish Testament. Okay? So, now moving on, here, where we left off was, well, then why the law? Why did we receive the law, and why the Jews have the law at Sinai? What was the point? And don't forget, this journey is to reacquaint the Hebrew children who've been gone 430 years, they don't know their divine father. They've been in a pagan, demonic um, society in which they were enslaved. And no, they did not know their um, Hebrew father, God, their uh, father creator. And it was a reacquaintance time. And that could only be done experientially. Yes, they experienced Passover for which they should have been uh, grateful. Uh, yes, they experienced Sinai, an amazing miracle. Yes, they came out on the other side of the, of the Sinai, uh, I'm sorry, of the uh, Red Sea experience. The Red Sea happened first. And, and we talked all about the symbolism of that uh, in the, in the uh, Christian walk. Uh, all, we also experienced Passover at the cross, uh, we go through water baptism, which is our Red Sea baptism, if you will. And then we are born again by coming up on the other side, um, still alive while Satan's army, Pharaoh's army, is um, pretty much uh, totally wiped out. And um, he was unable to assert his authority to re-enslave us because we died to sin when we were water uh, baptized. So that's what Romans chapter 6 was all about. But when we get to Sinai... Um, this is where a lot of confusion comes in in Gentile circles. Um, we basically have taken the law, including the eternal moral law of God, and jettisoned it over the side saying, oh, well, God, the only love, uh, law we're under is the law of love and that they don't really define. We don't define it <laughs> with any specificity. And um, basically it becomes, unfortunately, an amnesty uh, ongoing amnesty for us continuing to live in Egypt. In other words, we really didn't, when we made a commitment to uh, call the Lord Jesus Christ, 
not only our Savior but our Lord, um, we didn't leave Egypt behind. And so this dispensation of grace has been unfortunately perverted to mean this ongoing amnesty that we can continue to live in that society, in that sinful society, in our sin, and um, not make a transformation uh, process because we're waiting for future transportation out of the earth into heaven. And that's pretty much the Gentile gospel. Not totally, but, but to a large extent it is. And so, again, the requirements of journeys, Hebrews understand the requirements of journeys because they understand that the goal of God is to reacquaint himself relationally with his children because we've been gone so long, 430 years, under the tyranny of a, of a demonic a society, a pagan society that did not treat the Jews well. They were enslaved. And so, um, so it's necessary that this trip, the halfway point to the trip, is involved in getting to know God as the God of Israel, the all-powerful God of Israel, the Father God creator. But he has a love for us as his errant children. And part of that love is to do what fathers do, which is to not only provide for us, uh, which the Hebrews were going to learn about in the desert because they couldn't raise their own food. They had to depend on manna. They had to depend on uh, water coming out of a rock. They had to depend on their clothes and their shoes not wearing out. They had to depend on God uh, for the direction of where the food was going to be the following day. So they had to follow the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which is indicative of the precursor of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. And... Um, the dependency of, of a day-to-day walk, a day-to-day dependency, a day-to-day increase in the depth of the relationship based on our experiences during the journey, during the trip. That's how you get to know uh, your God. And it's interesting that... Um, when we, when God starts making covenants, whether they're covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or they were with the um, the Mosaic covenants or the covenant with David, covenants are basically contracts. It's a uh, agreement between two parties, and in this case, it would be God and His children. Um, but it's interesting that you really don't get to know somebody relationally until you walk out the terms of a contract, the terms of a covenant, the terms of a compact, if you will. And it's in the walking out portion of the terms, of, in other words, the carrying out of the uh, terms of the contract, the stipulations in the contract, that you get to know the uh, person on the other side of that piece of paper. Or in this case, the uh, the tablets where the Ten Commandments were placed. And just to give you an example, something that we probably already all have had experience in as adults is that uh, maybe we were renters at one time. Um, and there was a landlord, and we had to sign a, a, a contract for a lease. And um, in the process of walking out that monthly payment requirement – and living in a property that was uh, leased to us, we learn about the nature and the character of the person on the other side of that contract. We learn about the la- uh, landlord's uh, character. Um, is he somebody who will be Johnny on the spot when I have a leaking faucet and, or something happening in the middle of the night that I, you know, a, a pipe that blows up or whatever? It, will he fix the electrical system when light bulbs blow out or whatever? In other words... Will he take care of me as a, as a valued tenant? And on the other hand, if you're wearing the shoes of the landlord, you get to know through the contract, through the terms of the contract and the performance of the terms of the contract. You get to know the person on the other side, who, who the tenant is. Is that person reliable? Will he pay uh, on time? Will he pay the full rent every month or, you know, make excuses why he can't pay um, c- continually, etc.? Is he taking care of the property as if it were his own? 
And so there's lots of dimensions of other people's uh, nature and character that we learn in the walkout, if you will, of the performance of the stipulations or the terms of that contract, of that covenant. And that was part of the reason why the Jews had to come out to the desert. Uh, we Not to go over it again, but if you check out Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, the Father wants to know the motivations of his children. He wants to test what was in their hearts. What type of children do I have here? So Galatians, Paul, when he writes Galatians, asks a question uh, in same chapter we were reading in chapter 3, and this is verse 19. He says, um, what purpose then does the law serve? Question mark. And then he refers to the law. He said, it was added because of transgressions until the seed, and that's a capital S on that, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. So, the law was given because of putting on limitations to the authority that was earlier given to God's children back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And in this reacquaintance period of getting to know each other, can, for example, the question was, could the Jews trust the Father to come through? Will he provide for them since they couldn't provide for themselves? Um, could the Jews um, trust the Father to protect them? Because although they hadn't ran into the giants, hadn't run into the giants yet in the land, uh, which was going to happen much later when they crossed the Jordan, but there were other uh, enemies in the Sinai that did not want the Jews passing through their land. So would God come through as Father God and protect them from their enemies? So not only provision, but how about the uh, protection? Um, and do, did they really identify as Hebrews, as children of God in a family sort of way, as this relationship between father and children, um, intensified as this relation between father and children grew and matured and blossomed. And so, um, the journey was an experience um, on both the part of the Hebrew children to get to know their father and on part of the uh, father God to get to know uh, what motivated his children. Did they really want a relationship with him? Did they want one? He wanted one. The question was, did they want one? And so when we left off last week, we basically said, um, who was the seed um, that should come um, based on the promise being made? And it, and basically saying the law was a temporary fix just to keep transgressions um, in control. But when the seed would come, uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's why the title of this is uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of the new covenant and the law, both. So... What are we talking about there? Well, it's interesting that the Israelites at Mount Sinai, um, they really had a golden opportunity to personally reacquaint themselves with their God of deliverance, who had just rescued them from the multiple century <laughs> oppressive control of Pharaoh. And that's all spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And when they get to uh, Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, here is God making an opportunity, if you will, gift of an opportunity to enter into a covenant with them. And they were recently freed. They were recently liberated from their slavery. Um, but this covenant was going to be different than the one that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But unfortunately, because of the manifestations of power at Sinai, the Jews, because of fear, they refused to draw near to God. And it says in Deuteronomy 5.5, 5, on account of the fire you were afraid and you wouldn't go up the mountain. That's the Moses addressing the Jews, and that was very accurate. So the Jews had Moses stand in for them as their agent or as an intermediary between themselves and God. And what I point out on page 120 of, of the homecoming book is 
there's a question. Would the story of the wilderness wanderings of the Hebrews have a different outcome? Would it have a different outcome if the people of God had drawn near to God at Sinai and had personally reestablished a relationship with their father, which was being offered? But remember, there's nothing more important to Father God than uh, reestablishing a divine love-based relationship with his children. He desires deeply to reconnect with us as his errant children. Um, And what message did the Hebrew children at Mount Sinai send back to their father uh, when they were reluctant to meet with him and worship their divine father who had just rescued them 50 days earlier um, with the um, first Passover? They got rescued from death. The eldest born of each Egyptian family suffered the, the results of sin, and they were rescued from that. We'll pick it up on the other side of the break, and we'll follow this up. What was the message that was sent from the Hebrew children back to the Father when they didn't go up the mountain? See you next on the other side. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. We're continuing on with this study of Homecoming, the book that I authored uh, last year, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And we're talking about um, the requirements of journeys and why they're important. And we're talking about arriving at Sinai and contending with the requirement of of the law at Sinai and, and why the law was given. And so we've already uh, indicated in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes that the law was given um, to take care of transgressions uh, while the seed of Abraham um, was yet to be on the scene, so to speak. And so when he came, things were going to change. And so uh, I ask on page 120 of the Homecoming book, what message did the Hebrew children at Mount Sinai send to God when they were reluctant to meet and worship uh, God as their divine father, who had just rescued them from 400 years of slavery, of demonic Egyptian oppression? Instead of expressing gratitude and thanks by eagerly entering into a per- personal relationship with their divine father, they instead preferred to stand far off and send Moses as an agent to basically contact their Heavenly Father on their behalf. So instead of drawing close to God for a relationship, they pulled back. They pulled away. And I comment on page 121, that was really a tragic, lost opportunity. Um, I point out that um, the author of the Complete Jewish Bible, David Stearns, um, p- explains that the Mosaic Covenant is similar to a marriage contract between God as both husband and king with Israel as his wife and people. Well, that's pretty. That's pretty close relationship. That's pretty profound, deep relationship, intimate relationship. And then I ask the question, but what type of intimacy would there be there in a marriage relationship with a designated agent representing each side? There wouldn't be a whole lot of closeness there. So uh, it was the Hebrew people who desired and selected Moses to stand between themselves and God at Mount Sinai. And then I point out, um, the opposite was true uh, of Abraham. Abraham had a personal relationship with God, uh, also based on a a covenant. They entered into a contract. They entered into a, a covenant. And they got to know each other on a personal basis because they walked out the performance of that covenant, of that contract. And the same can be said of Isaac, and the same can be said of Jacob. Each had personal relationships with God. The Abrahamic covenant that was formed reflected a close, personal relationship. It was based on trust between a called-out individual man, Abraham, and his God. And the same can be said of Isaac, and the same can be said of Jacob. But because of the reluctance and refusal of the Israelites to climb up Mount Sinai and to meet God personally, the Mosaic Covenant ended up 
consisting of bilateral, it means both sides, bilateral promises of blessings and security in a promised land to be delivered to the future or in the future to this group, the Hebrew group of, uh, of, of Israel, in exchange for a promise of trusting obedience on their part. But what could have been an individual, personal, unilateral contract, in other words, um, kind of what happened between Abraham and God. Uh, Father God, when he first approached Abraham, he said, you do these things, and then I will bless you mightily. And he just said what, what he was to do. And guess what? He said, get your family, get out of Ur, and leave now. And Abraham, by doing all those things, accepted that, that, ter- that term of promise uh, for the for the land to be given, the inheritance of land, but also when he did those things, not only did he uh, accept the offer made by God to enter into a, a covenant, but he also fulfilled his half of the agreement, and that's why it's called a unilateral contract. It's a it's an offer in exchange or a promise made in, in expect, expectation of a return action. So. Um, what could have been individual, personal, unilateral contracts with the whole group of Hebrews at Mount Sinai rather ended up being a more removed, a more distant, a more separate bilateral group covenant because it was basically promises for promises. That's what happened there. And it was a tragic rejection of the gift of a personal, contractual, covenantal relationships with their father, God. It was to be a marriage contract with the group without individual intimacy. He wanted the individual intimacy. But the recently liberated Israelites at Sinai rejected that opportunity for a personal marriage intimacy with God based on their fear. God's children as a group instead picked or opted out of the intimacy component of the marriage covenant. So what about the laws and the statutes and the judgments that are mentioned in the Mosaic Covenant? They reflected um, a God of law, his nature, his one of also justice. It's also one of mercy. And it contrasted a holy God with an unholy people. And it set up legal standards and systems to reward faithful obedience and to discipline faithless disobedience. And there's, if you read Deuteronomy 28, chapter 28, and Deuteronomy chapter 29, you can see the cause and effect of what happens if you heed God's law and obey it versus casting it off, neglecting it, um, and through rebellion, disregarding it, and what happens um, there with the cause and effect. And Deuteronomy 28 is very powerful. Very powerful indeed. I think the first third of it talks about all the blessings that uh, they were to receive from God if they simply kept their part of the bargain. But if they didn't, the last two-thirds was uh, a list of all of the diseases of Egypt, all of the curses of Egypt, which would be their portion. But as mentioned before, I'm on page 122 now, of the homecoming book, Covenants and Contracts Reveal the Nature and Characteristics of the People who participate in those binding agreements. As such, God's nature was one of holiness, and it was revealed to his children through this Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic law in and of itself was good. That's what Galatians chapter 3 says. That's what Paul says about the law. He says in Galatians chapter 3, in 10 verses, 19 through 29, the law in and of itself was good. However, unfortunately, the Jews were unable to keep the law. Why? Because the law was written on stone, and it had not been yet written inside them. In other words, on their hearts, placed in their minds, written on their hearts. It, ha- it was on stone. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, uh, as in the Pentecost of the New Testament uh, that we see in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Uh, the Jews, um, their Messiah and, and uh, his new covenant had not yet been revealed to them, so he hadn't really seen the Messiah yet, and the new covenant hadn't been explained and hadn't been revealed yet to them. But additionally, the Hebrews did not have the power and the influence, and this is the key ingredient that was lacking, was of the Holy Spirit, Um, as we see in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 38. um, That Holy Spirit power would eventually be released onto the uh, Jewish followers of their Jewish deliverer, Jesus, Yeshua, after his death, resurrection, and ascension. 
So, um, in essence, we have to answer this question, and that is this. Um, If Galatians tells us that the law of Sinai was transitory, it was meant to handle the transgressions until the seed was to arrive. Well, that's a capital S, by the way, in the New King James. Well, who is that seed? And what was his connection to the law, if any? And um, I wanted to point out to you the concept of a new covenant first shows up in the um, Jewish Testament, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one, And that's um, when it's first mentioned. And with the Jews are in captivity uh, because of their transgressions. Um, they're in Babylon. And um, Jeremiah the prophet is telling them the following. I'm taking this from page 128, and this is out of the uh, New King James Version. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So what's he referring to there? He's referring to the Mosaic covenant, okay? So he's saying this is new, and it's not according to that covenant. So this is like if you have a ladder, you have rungs on a ladder, and each rung on that ladder is to take you up to a higher, more deeper relationship um, with the ladder builder, if you if you will, the, the ladder creator. And so um, the next line is, my covenant, which they broke, and basically saying, we had a, we had a deal, um, and they didn't keep their end of the bargain. Remember I said through contracts and covenants, you get to know the well, the personality and the, the other individual who is on the other side of that, of that contract. He says, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them. This is the Father God saying this in, in, through Jeremiah, the prophet, says the Lord. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, and here it is, <clears throat> excuse me, I will put my law. Now, remember where the law was in the um, Sinai covenant, it was on, placed on stones and on tablets, stone tablets. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to enable them to keep that law. But he says here in the new covenant, I will put my law in their minds, okay? That's an inside job, and write it on their hearts. So this isn't stone. We're talking about soft tissue here. Minds and hearts. I will. Um, let me say this again. I'll read it again. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Now, what's that lead to? And notice the very next line, it's a semicolon there, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The whole purpose of covenants was to reestablish and reconnect, reconcile, if you will, a ruptured relationship between Father God and his children. And that was the whole point of bringing the Hebrew children out from that uh, demonic, corrupt society and say, you're not part of this. This is not the spirit you are of. You belong to me. I am your father. That was the message that um, Moses and Aaron were to take to Pharaoh. Let my people go. God was being very possessive, thank God. (laughs) that he is. He's a jealous God. Also, thank God for that. And then um, I point out also, so when you see the new covenant being mentioned for the first time in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, um, we oftentimes have to find its counterpart in the New Testament to say, well, does this still apply to us? And so I point out, look how this declaration in the Old Testament is confirmed in the New. And I'm going to be write, uh, I'm reading uh, out of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8 through 10. This is out of the complete Jewish Bible, David Stearns. See, the days are coming, says Adonai, that's the Father, when I establish over the house of Israel and the house of Judah a new covenant, It will not be like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them forth out of the land of Egypt, because they, for their part, did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I, for my part, stopped concerning myself with them, says Adonai. 
I will put my Torah or my law, my teaching in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now that's out of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. By the way, that's mentioned a second time in summary form in Hebrews chapter 10. So we have two references in the New Testament about the singular reference in Jeremiah 31 about what's this new covenant and what is it? So I mentioned on page 129 of the book, but first, there's an internal reworking that needs to be carried out within us to prepare us to be um, God's dwelling place because he's saying, I'm going to put this inside my people. And if you look at Isaiah 66, um, verses 1 through 2, let's take a look at that, because that's uh, from the prophet Isaiah, and I'll read it here out of the uh, New King James. Here we go, Isaiah 66. Now, look at this talking about from a relational standpoint between father and children. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Now notice this is a question coming up. Where is the house that you will build for me? Now we Gentiles think, well, wait a minute. We were always taught that if we die, we get mansions in heaven. But we're going to talk about that later at another time. (laughs) Was that a good translation uh, or was it really more of a dwelling or abiding place, a residence, a domicile, not a mansion. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that later, um, but that's in, uh, in John chapter 14. But let's go over here in Isaiah 66. Here's the question that's being asked, because thus saith the Lord is what Isaiah just wrote. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? See, God's not at rest yet because the relationships haven't been restored. The relationships haven't been repaired. There hasn't been a reconciliation yet. And God's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my place to be, of this house to be built for me so I may have rest. I mean, we don't think about that. Scene. How can God not be at rest? He's God. Well, why is he asking this question in Isaiah 66, 1? Let's go on to the second verse. For all those things my hand has made, talking about heaven and earth, and all those things exist, says the Lord. Now, he's going to answer his own question that he asked in verse 1 in the second half of verse 2. So remember the question? Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? Let's skip on down, second half of verse 2. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Now notice he didn't say, I'm going to have a piece of land over there and uh, we're going to put the cornerstone over here and the foundation is going to go there and we're going to build the wall. He's saying, on this one will I look, and he describes a person and the nature and character of that person. He answers his own question on the very next verse, Isaiah 66, 2. Where is the house you will build for me? Where is the place of my rest? But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He's looking to go inside, to indwell his people. Now, that is different than what Adam and Eve had in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They were with God on earth, and God was with them on earth. But there was no indwelling there. And as we're, we're going to see in this new covenant, this covenant explains a relationship that is way more profound, way more intimate, way more deep, because it's not God with us. I think, um, I don't have the verse right at my fingertips, but in Colossians uh, chapter 1, it talks about the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice it, it didn't say in Colossians that but the mystery was Christ with you or Christ alongside of you 
or Christ near you. It says the preposition in, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Big difference. And what this new covenant is saying is the first covenant was written on tablets of stone. Um, the Jews couldn't keep it. They didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They didn't understand the, the Messiah part of it yet. But this Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 basically is the setup for what does that mean that God's looking for a place of rest? I mean, shouldn't he be at rest because he's up in heaven? And he's going, that's not, that's not what I'm looking towards. I'm looking to get reunited with my children who were separated from me in Genesis chapter 3. There was a separation there. There was a detachment. And, you know, if we look at the uh, definition of eternal life in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Um, Adam and Eve, when they were detached from the presence of God, had the opposite of eternal life in that moment. Well, what would you call it if it wasn't eternal life because they had just sinned? God had to remove them so that they wouldn't be consumed by the presence of his holiness. He didn't... So, but in essence, away from God, they were walking dead people because eternal life is the presence of God in us, indwelling us. So only the new covenant can bring about this type of metamorphosis to bring us into, oh, I'm going to be a dwelling place for God? Yes, you are. And we're going to see a lot of New Testament verses by that. So on page 129 of Homecoming, I say the new covenant is the means by which Father God will bring about And notice the new covenant is the means by which Father God will bring about our reconnection with him. The new covenant is the road. Remember I told you about the the reason for journeys. The new covenant is the road back home, kind of like with the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It's the road back home, not to heaven, but back to our divine father. We didn't lose heaven in the garden in Genesis 3. We lost our relationship with our Father. It makes all the difference when you get into the definitions. The new covenant is the way by which Father God will bring about our reconnection with him. Ever since mankind's rebellious fall that we saw in Genesis chapter 3, Father God has had an intense desire to reunite himself in a relationship, a deep connected relationship with his estranged children. And I say in the book, it is important to remember that the desire, his desire to reconnect is his main motivation. That is why he is doing all of these things with his Hebrew children and does the same thing with us as his Gentile children. It's his main motivation in all of his dealings with us, all of his dealings with us. No matter the challenge, no matter the, the experience, he, if he takes us out to the desert, to, to the university of God, it's so that we get to know him better, to trust him, to depend on him. We have a different, more um, rela- different type of relationship, which um, it's meant to last forever. The father has a grand blueprint to carry out his ultimate reunif- reunification plan all the way to its completion. And I mentioned... Covenants are God's mechanisms which serve as roadmaps for our reconciliation back to him. Covenants identify not only the goal of our homecoming, but also the means by which it is achieved. Our homecoming training will prepare us to be a part of God's soon returning heavenly kingdom back to earth. And I refer the readers to say, go check out Revelations chapter 19. Go go check out Revelations um, 20 and, uh, well, actually 19 through 22. Read all of those chapters. What's it talking about? A circular journey, okay, back to God and back to earth, which is our inheritance, which we lost in Genesis chapter 3. Our inheritance isn't heaven. It's it's the material creation. Satan stole that from us by deceiving us to doubt the nature and character of God. And once we authorize Satan by believing his lies, we were in a losing position, and we have been suffering ever since. The covenant steps, each in their own way, ultimately lead to the last and best covenant, which is superior to all the previous ones, which is the new covenant. They're linked inextricably. 
Their common purpose reflects God's intense desire to reconnect with his disenfranchised progeny, his children. They are circular roadmaps leading back to him and back to our home on earth. And ultimately, they will lead to our complete homecoming. What it is, is a relational restoration. So check this out. Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Don't leave out this part. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. You see how the relationship is always there. It's the promised earthly inheritance. Uh, Psalm 115, 16. This is out of the complete Jewish Bible. Heaven belongs to Adonai, but the earth he has given to humankind. There's our inheritance. And lastly, it's the paternal promise of inheritance to Jesus, our Messiah. In Psalm 2, 8, he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. He's talking about the nations of the earth as your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. That's Psalm 2, 8 out of complete Jewish Bible. Anyway, we'll uh, have to start wrapping it up here. We will pick up here talking about, is Jesus the new covenant? And if he is, is he the fulfillment of the law as he claimed in Matthew five seventeen? All right. We will see you next week. And until then, may you have many, several simple truth moments. God bless you. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal is Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.